Welcome to Mansplaining, a podcast about the interesting things you can discover if you just take the time to learn. You know the drill by now, folks. My name is Joe. I'm your host for this week. And as always, I'm joined by my college friend, Mark. Together, we'll explore what's on our minds and hopefully figure out a thing or two about a thing or two. Mark, I thought I'd dispense with the usual small talk before this episode because I want to make another observation to you prior to you starting your presentation. So okay. the question I put to you, I'm going to repeat verbatim. It is, Mark, if you had a son and he wanted to play football, would you let him? I answered the question last time, and my answer was an emphatic no. And in reflecting on our last episode about the reliability of scientific studies and prepping for this episode, it occurred to me that we really, really need the science about repetitive brain trauma to be accurate, or, or we have no basis for deciding whether to let our kids play football. Yeah. That thought occurred to me. It kind of connects the two episodes, the last one and this one. And I know you're going to get into this in detail, but I just wanted to start us off with that observation and see if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, that, of course, is critical. If you don't know what you're talking about, then the only thing you're left with is emotion-based reasoning, and right. that tends to lead us in a bad direction. I will be able to offer a few indications in this regard, but more study is definitely needed, Yeah, particularly with youth sports, because youth sports is just poorly documented, as I'll mention later. That generally speaking, there's not a full medical staff on the sideline at a youth football game. And so we don't have the data that we have from professional football uh, right. at the same degree of precision for younger youth groups. So, right. yes, more study is definitely needed. Right. And, and yet for all the talk about fraud in our last episode, I was thinking, Jesus, I sure hope there isn't any fraud in this area of scientific research because so many important decisions are hinging on it, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. At least very little money is at play when it's 10-year-olds running around on the field. Yeah. But with that, I suppose we could just jump right into it. Yep. So you asked if I had a son, and as our listeners may already know, this is an entirely hypothetical question for me. I do not have children aside from my dog, and my dog is not interested in football. Thank goodness. So I've never had to wonder whether my son should play football. But let's imagine that alternate universe in which I do have a son. And let's say he's about 10 years old right now, the time when he might join a school team or play in a youth football league. Football is the most popular spectator sport in the U.S., but it is not the sport most kids play between the ages of 13 and 17. Joe, can you name the top five youth sports in this country by participation? Well, I think number one has got to be soccer. Not in the U.S., Worldwide, absolutely. Yeah, I still would have guessed soccer in the U.S. because just where I live, all kids, boys and girls, play soccer. Right. And then all the other sports are kind of niche. So, But tell me. Well, according to the data I found, number one is actually basketball with 3.44 million youth participants followed. Hmm. And you'll be pleased to hear this by baseball at 2.18 million. Soccer comes in third at 1.48 million. And then football, just behind soccer at 1.46 million, with tennis rounding out the top five at 1.41 million. Mm. 
which surprised me that tennis would be anywhere near that list. But yes. the main point here is football is barely above tennis in the number of participants, but there are still over a million kids playing football in high school. I played it two for one season in sixth grade, and that one season was enough to convince me that soccer was a better choice for me. Oh, yeah. How about you? Did you play football when you were a kid? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I have almost the exact same story as you. I played organized football for one year. And something happened on the practice field that basically warned me off football for the rest of my life, as a player at least. I got the wind knocked out of me in practice. You know, what happens, you hit your solar plexus and you lose your wind, and I was kind of gasping for air. But the coaches thought I had swallowed my mouthpiece. So they put me down flat on the ground. They started sticking their hands in my mouth, seeing if they could grab the mouthpiece. And I was struggling for air at the time. So it was a really horrifying, scary situation. And that was basically it for me as a player of football. We can talk about our football fandom separately, I guess. But to answer your question, one year in out, just like you. Yeah. For me, the one experience that crystallized my experience in youth football, is for some crazy reason, in the middle of a game, my coach put me in at defensive line. And (laughs) I was this tiny little kid. And I remember the kid across from me on the line was easily twice my size. And he was just throwing me around like a rag doll. And and after one sequence of plays, I went to the sideline and close to tears, I told the coach that if I had to play more defensive line, I was going to quit the team. And he had this super surprised look on his face and he was like, okay, you don't have to. But that was all I needed to know, that football and my height and weight were not a good mix. And I switched to soccer the next year. Yeah. And there's no avoiding the fact that football is a physical sport, as I experienced firsthand, and tackling is where injuries tend to happen. As a hypothetical father, I would have to be concerned with my child being seriously injured. So that's what we'll be talking about today, how risky football is for younger players. Now, I would not be considering the risks of playing professional football, because for most kids, that's a pipe dream. Even for kids who are good enough to play on their high school team, the chance of playing pro ball is 0.16% or roughly one in 600. So that's a fairy tale. The real question most fathers confront is whether it's too risky to let their sons play football between the ages of 10 and 18. And let's also say right up front that it's not just football that carries risk of injury. Personally, in younger days, my most serious injuries were in basketball and and skiing. I broke my arm playing basketball, and I damaged cartilage in my knee while skiing. Mm. And I also broke some bones in soccer though they were minor bones in my feet. If you look at total injuries, broken bones, sprains, dislocations, and that sort of thing, kids actually have a higher chance of being injured in soccer or baseball than they do in football. But where football distinguishes itself is in injuries to the head and neck. Here, there are other sports that are about the same level of risk. The risk of catastrophic injury in football is about a par with the gymnastics, for instance. And by some measures, it's actually lower than the risk you find in ice hockey where the risk for a concussion is about the same as football, and hockey also has that idiosyncratic risk that a fist fight will break out in the middle of the game. Hmm. 
Yeah. And then there are sports like boxing or mixed martial arts where giving and receiving severe blows to the head is a fundamental part of the game. And if you do it really well, it might get you on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So if I were a father, I'd be particularly concerned that my child avoid these sports. But we're talking about football today, so let's examine the risks there. The most commonly injured body parts in football at all ages are the knee, the ankle, the hand, and the back. Most injuries are sprains, strains, and contusions, and contusion is the fancy word for bruising. Injuries to the head and back are relatively uncommon. Depending on the study, they represent between 5 and 13% of all injuries from the sport, but of course they can be much more severe. When catastrophic injury does happen in football, it generally happens during tackling, especially when one or more players lead with their head when tackling, a technique known as spearing. Spearing is dangerous both for the tackler and the player being speared, and it's been against the rules since 1976. The incidence of catastrophic injury in football has declined ever since that year, but every football fan will tell you that you still see it in games from time to time. You can seriously injure your neck by spear tackling, but what football has really become known for lately is concussions. And again, the majority of concussions result from tackling or being tackled. Older players are more likely to suffer concussions than younger players. They're bigger and faster, so they tend to run into each other with more force. But concussions are not unknown in the younger divisions. One study looked at emergency room visits for children between 2001 and 2018. The cases that involved sports-related injuries averaged out to about 230,000 per year, and about one-fourth of those were head injuries from tackle football. It's actually difficult to track the incidence of injuries in youth football because, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, most teams don't have trainers on the sidelines to diagnose or keep records of those injuries. But one study by Seattle Children's Hospital placed trainers with youth teams over a two-year period and found that 5% of players experienced a concussion over the course of a single season. The 5% figure was later confirmed by a second study, so we can be pretty confident about that number. The majority of concussions happen in practices rather than games, so some have suggested that there should be no tackling except in games as a way of reducing the incidence of concussions. Others, though, have argued that players who aren't trained to tackle and be tackled are more likely to get injured, so limiting tackling might actually make football more dangerous. In addition, playing football might have long-term effects. One study suggests that playing tackle football increases your odds of developing Parkinson's disease. Wow. Not by a lot, I should say. For every eight years of playing football, your odds go up by about 1%, but there is an effect. There is, though, contrary evidence in this area. One long-term study of men who played high school football in 1957 showed no higher prevalence of cognitive decline, depression, or alcohol use in former football players. But it's undeniable that multiple concussions can have serious effects. Post-concussion syndrome is no joke. I know someone who suffers from it, and even years later, he still struggles with sensitivity to bright lights. Hmm. Multiple head injuries have been hypothesized as causative of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, a condition that can cause cognitive decline, headaches, short-term memory problems, and changes in behavior such as sudden explosions of anger. If I were the father of a hypothetical son, and he were to suffer a concussion— be it in football, hockey, skiing, lacrosse, gymnastics, or what have you, I would definitely make sure he has time to fully recover before he plays again. 
Can I stop you right there? Because you just made a distinction between repetitive head injuries and concussion. I've been reading how the focus had been on concussion for the last few decades in football, but there's new research, I think out of Boston University, that head impacts themselves, not concussion, is what causes CTE. So that we need to reduce head impacts generally, not so much concussion specifically. Yeah, that's a good call out. I might be using the term concussion somewhat loosely here. So yes, uh, expand the term to include head injuries in general. Now, you don't get CTE from one head injury or even from two. Studies indicate that the average number of concussions or head injuries leading to CTE is 17. Wow. So CTE is a risk primarily for people who play football or other contact sports for a very long time, probably even professionally. Right. But there are undeniable risks to playing football, and they've received a lot of attention in the press. As a consequence of this, for years now, parents have been steering their kids towards soccer and other alternative pursuits, while youth football has been in decline. The peak of youth tackle football participation was way back in 2009, and participation today is down 6 to 7% overall. It's not in decline everywhere, however. Quick quiz, Joe. Participation in youth tackle football declined by more than 20% in 11 U.S. states, but over the same period, participation rate rose by even more in seven states. How many states can you name on both sides of that divide? And I know this is a tough one, but take a crack at it. Yeah. Well, my operative theory in answering this question is that in metropolitan areas, blue areas, it's probably declining and it's increasing in red areas. So I'm going to guess places like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, Vermont, Oregon, Washington, it's decreasing in places like that. And it's increasing in places like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, the the Confederacy, basically. Am I on the right track? You are on the right track. The specific states you named, you were better at naming the increasing states. Mm. There's been that 20% decline in Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Michigan, Montana, Nebraska, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Wisconsin, and Vermont. So you went about 50-50 on those states. Yeah. The states where it's increasing, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nevada, Oklahoma, Texas, and Utah. So it's kind of a north versus south divide. Yes. Nevada and Utah in the southwest, plus a cluster of states in the south and southeast, are the only parts of the country where youth football is growing by leaps and bounds. It's flat or in decline everywhere else, and the decline is great enough that it's fueling a decrease in overall high school sports participation. And look, you have to wonder whether the growth, after all this evidence about CTE, is a microcosm of political polarization and the turn against science on behalf of Red America. I think that's at play. I also think partly at play, and this study itself pointed it out, is that the states where football is thriving at the youth level are predominantly Southeast Conference states. And for non-sports fans, the SEC is the preeminent football conference at the college level. Mm. And those are basically mini pro teams, right? teams like Clemson and Georgia and Alabama. And they're on 
television all the time, and they are constantly talked about among sports writers and right. sports commentators on television networks. And so there's just so much attention and so much press and so much media and so much advertising around it yeah. that probably a lot of that is driving it as well. Yeah, football culture is strong. Yeah, if you grew up in those states, these are your heroes when you're growing up. You want to be like yes. your heroes. You want to play football. Yeah. Now, football is still the preeminent sport in this country. I think we mentioned on this podcast before that 47 of the top 50 television broadcasts in 2019 were football games. Yes. But it's becoming more of a spectator sport in the country overall than a participatory sport. Kids today might be playing flag football or soccer, or maybe they're playing video games instead, but far fewer are putting on the shoulder pads today. Participation in youth basketball is also in a long-term year-over-year decline, which suggests that safety concerns are only one of the factors behind this trend. But of course, safety is a primary concern for parents, and they're not just aware of the risks of playing tackle football, they're hyper-aware. I mentioned earlier the stat that over the course of a season in youth tackle football, about 5%, or 1 in 20, of the players will suffer a concussion. When parents are polled, however, 83% thought the percentage was 10% or more, and 25% of parents believed that more than half of all players suffer a concussion every year. There are real risks to playing tackle football, especially year after year when one injury after another can pile up for some players. That is undeniable. It is also true, however, that the perception of football's dangers is greater than the reality. And I think this is an example of something I've seen in many different areas. As a society, we have a very binary way of thinking and talking about risk. Either something is risky or it's not. Either something will give you cancer or it won't. We don't really have a language for discussing the various degrees of risk. Yes. In 2021, for instance, four high school football players died from injuries they suffered in practice or in games. And that's a tragedy. Four lives snuffed out far too early. Every single year, though, about 500 teenagers in America die of drug overdoses, and more than 3,000 die in car accidents. Ask the average parent which is more dangerous for their child, playing tackle football or traveling in a car, and I guess that a number are likely to say football, even though the risks of death and serious injury by car accident are several hundred times higher. Now, I can hear the objections. The use of a car in some parts of this country is nearly mandatory. I grew up in one of those parts of the country. Right. While outside of Texas and some other parts of the South, football was entirely optional. Why not have their kids play something else if doing so would remove a little bit of risk from their lives? And I can see how a parent would feel that way. Less risk is better than more risk. But I have two things that those actual parents should consider. First, Tech football carries risks, but it also involves exercise and social bonding, both of which are important to children. If they're not playing football, I'd strongly recommend soccer or basketball, baseball when it's in season. Don't let them just sit on the couch and play video games. And I say this is someone who likes to sit on the couch and play video games. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> I like video games. I've played them all my life. Even so, I think being out in a field, running around with a ball, has benefits that esports do not. And I can tell you that I have much more vivid, beneficial memories from my childhood of being on the basketball team, playing soccer with my friends, playing baseball with my friends, than I do playing games yep. on a monitor. Yeah, no argument here. I completely agree. 
Second point, telling your kid he can't play football can seriously backfire. There's a phenomenon called reactance that comes into play in these situations. Reactance is a psychological response that occurs when individuals perceive their freedom of choice to be restricted. When someone feels compelled or pressured to make a certain decision, they may experience reactance, which is the clinical name for the desire to rebel against an imposed choice. As a hypothetical parent, I'm not simply deciding whether to allow my son to play football. If the answer is no, I'll need to explain that to him. I'm sure you're aware of this, Joe, even more so than I am, but the desire for autonomy and independence becomes increasingly strong during adolescence, and kids want to be in control of their own decisions. Yes, definitely true. If I were to come to my hypothetical son and just tell him what he is and is not allowed to do, it could trigger a reactance response, which is to say he might try to play football anyway behind my back or possibly engage in compensatory acts of defiance or rebellion. Psychologists say that the way around reactance is to aim for a balanced approach that respects the child's autonomy while offering guidance and information. The child's thoughts, feelings, and concerns should be part of the conversation. Share your understanding of the risks of playing football and give them a chance to share their feelings and preferences. Yeah. You don't need to give in to what your child wants, but you do need to take their feelings into account and explain your decision, ideally offering some benefits to this decision in addition to the costs. Yeah. You're aiming for something that feels like a collaboration between you and your child. Yeah, all true. And I'm not here to pick a fight with reactants. It's absolutely true. And I think it's particularly true after adolescence and in the teenage years in particular from my own experience with kids. But when you started this section, I thought of that old saying, you don't get to choose which sport your kid loves. And my own experience of being a parent, I beg to differ with that. I think you can get to choose what sports your kids love if you're going through that process prior to their reaching adolescence. You know, parents do have some agency here. Sure. And my own story is that I love baseball. I taught my son to love baseball. He started playing organized baseball at age six and straight through high school he played. He's no longer interested in playing baseball. He plays ultimate frisbee now in college, but I was able to influence him in that way. And I think that's an important point. I know you're focused on ages 10 to 18, but I think it's worth saying that if you have a chance to stop your kid from playing football, you should take that opportunity and do it before they become adolescents. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And thank you for your actual parent perspective on that. That parents definitely do have a role for this. If I give the impression that I'm saying that you just have to allow the kid to make their own choices, no. Parents clearly have influence of their children. It's just don't steamroll them is really the advice I'm offering. Yeah. And I wasn't suggesting that you were saying that. I think the difference in our approaches is your focus is on the adolescent child and where it is much harder to affect their their likes. Yep. but. If you start earlier, at least I found you can have some success in that area. Right. So let's bring around to your original question. Would I allow my son to play football? 
And despite everything that I've said so far, I honestly feel like I probably would. And my reasoning is as follows. First, he may not like it. It only took that one season of football for me to perceive quite clearly that watching football was a lot more fun than being down in the trenches, going up against boys who were a lot bigger than me, and pretty much getting my ass kicked on a regular basis. (laughs) The risks of playing one season of football are negligible. The concern only arises if he plays year after year, and then there are benefits to be considered as well. He's probably established a practice of fitness and made good friends on the team. Teenage years are tough enough. You want to go through that period with a group of friends. As his hypothetical father, I would keep a close eye out for any indication he suffered a concussion. I would not trust his coaches to make the decision to sit him down when he needs time away from the game. That would be my job. And through all of this, I'd go to his games and throw a ball with him. We'd watch football together. My father never did any of those things with me, and that had consequences too. Football isn't the only thing that's risky. But that's just me. We started this episode kind of unusually with your perception on the matter, so we already know your answer to the question. But do you feel like you learned anything from what I shared today? Yes, and I suspected we might differ on this one, which is another reason I asked you, because I, I want to engage with you now on your decision and, and and share some of my thoughts about this. So... In the interest of full disclosure, I was a huge football fan as a kid. I rooted for the Minnesota Vikings, the four-time losers of the Super Bowl when I was a boy in the 1970s. Some people have argued that's why I don't like football anymore, because I picked the wrong team, but <laughs> I don't think that's actually true. I was a absolute diehard Minnesota Vikings fan as a kid. And I did want to play football more than I wanted to play baseball, which is why I had that one year of organized football that we spoke about earlier. But I no longer respect football. I think it's undignified. I think it's exploitative. It reminds me of gladiators destroying themselves for our entertainment. It just rubs me the wrong way, some visceral level. And I completely confess that that's one reason I would steer my kid away from it. And then this is before you even get to the physical impacts and CTE and repeated head trauma and concussion. So... You have any reaction to that before I go on? I think everything that you said is true. I would extend it to say that every professional sport is exploitive on some level. Like baseball, for instance, does not have the CTE risk of football, but it also discards players at the very moment that they don't provide value to the team. Every professional sport has been cynical since its inception because that's just what money does to things. And so while football is a guilty pleasure of mine, I don't feel better about myself if I'm watching a MLS game because professional soccer also exploits its players. Just professional sports in general, you have to bracket certain things to enjoy them. And for some reason, I've always been a football fan. I remain a football fan. There's something about this sport that captures my attention, even though the violence of the sport is troubling to me. And That's something that I have examined in myself, and I'm not particularly proud of it, but it definitely influenced my answer to the question. Right. I wish that I had been a better football player is kind of that. And so if my son were to dream of being a football player, I could 
get behind that desire and be with him there and just be a supportive father in that context, I believe. Even though I know that if he plays for 18 years, then there are significant risks. And my study of the risk here says that I don't really need to worry about 18 years because no son that I would have would probably be able to play that long. So in the short time that he's able to play football, I would be there cheering him on. Yeah. Well, this is good in the sense that we both brought our personal baggage into this and we put it on the table here and it does affect our answers. But I guess I would ask you to think about what if you were six foot four, 240 pounds and played football as a kid and your son is likely to be as big and strong as you are, would that change your mind about asking about uh, steering him away from football, you know? Sure. Assuming that I'm six foot four, but otherwise I'm the same person, I feel like part of my relationship with the son would be having ongoing discussions with him about what preparing for his future means and that a future of playing professional football is a path that leads to disappointment for like 999 of a thousand players. And the ones who are disappointed are left with nothing else because they did not think about what plan B is. And so I'd be there cheering for him in the games. And then outside of the games, I would be having conversations with him about other things he could imagine himself doing and cultivating those interests. Kind of like you were talking about earlier that you guided your son in the direction of baseball. I would guide my son in the direction of probably soccer rather than baseball, but also reading and writing and imagining other things that he might do because I would know that those skills would be much more useful to him than knowledge of how to find an open man within a drop-back passing scenario. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, I want to say one other thing, and I want to preface this by saying you certainly did not poo-poo the scientific evidence. You did bring out some interesting and useful nuances about the medical record on football injuries when you mentioned that only 5% of football injuries are concussions and it's much more frequent to have a knee or ankle injury. That's useful information. And there's a very firm correlation between football injuries and CTE, but As we all know, correlation is not causation, and I'm not sure we've gotten to the point of proving causation, although those head impact studies are moving us in that direction, perhaps. But this is what I want to say. Even without definitive proof of causation, I still feel like there's a common sense basis upon which you can steer your kid away from football, you know? All these injuries, all these head injuries, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck, you know? There's the Occam's razor aspect of this. The simplest explanation is the best. People are getting CTE, disproportionately football and hockey players, therefore it must be the head injury, you know? So let's dispense with all the there's no proof there's no definitive proof so i'm going to keep letting my kid play football i just don't buy that i think there's a lot of common sense that leads you to avoid 
football. So the bottom line for me is the more hits you take to the head, the worse the effects, the greater the chances of developing a grievous disease like CTE. So why take the chance with your kid's life, putting him or her in a sport that involves head injuries? It's that simple to me. And I can absolutely see the logic to that. It's kind of what I I went to before. Even if the risks are low, why suffer the risks at all is kind of the question there. Yeah. And personally, I wish that flag football was more popular than it was because there is a beauty in the complexity of football that I appreciate where you've got 22 players on the field and they all have a role to play. And what happens on a given play depends on how those 22 people play their particular role within that. I I love that part of football. I've never loved the tackling aspect of football. I wish that football could just stop with the tackling. But yeah, that's probably a pipe dream of my own. Hmm. And there's a beauty to soccer too. There's a beauty to baseball. There's a beauty to basketball. So I can absolutely understand the parent who thinks, why suffer the risks at all? But sometimes, and I'm, again, speaking in this hypothetical space, you're dealing with a kid who is in love with football. And I think in that case, your best course is to engage with the love rather than trying to shut it down. Probably the best strategy is the one that you pursued with your own son, where you started with an early age with the goal of getting him to love baseball. I talked about the time frame from 10 to 18 years old. Probably for a true parent, you should be thinking, you know, four, four to 10. Like that might be the the key age where you have the, the most influence over what that child would choose once they have the power to choose. Right. And lest any of our listeners think this is some nefarious plot, it really wasn't. You know, it was more like, I love baseball. I want my kids to be exposed to things that I love because then they get to see me loving something, which is important life experience, you know? So I wasn't going to take my kids to football games because they're boring and I don't respect football anymore. I was going to take them to baseball games. And so it was just kind of understandable and natural that my son would get entranced by it. He wants to be like daddy and do things daddy does. And this is what daddy was doing, you know? Right. So it's that elemental. It wasn't a plan, but yeah. Yeah. And I love that you were engaged in that way with your son. I think that's a beautiful thing. I, as I hinted earlier, had a father who's not engaged in that way. He was uh, more interested in himself and in his own dreams and less interested in his children. And that had probably an impact on my own perception of this. Like, would I be the father oh, no who, doubt. who tells his son to not do stuff? Because that was my father. He was telling me not to do things. Yeah. And so it's probably just on a deep, visceral, emotional level, I would want to be the father who says yes, because I did not have that kind of father. So yeah. that's kind of like the peak behind the curtain of my answer. Yes, right. And I think we can both agree that a father like that, that's self-absorbed and not engaging with his child is probably doing a lot worse damage on average than would be done if the kid were playing football, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I do not suffer from CTE today, but I continue to suffer from father related issues. Yeah. It's become my lifelong debilitating condition. So do you feel like I answered your question? 
Yeah, thank you. It was an interesting conversation and one I wanted to have and one I suspected we'd be a little bit at odds with each other, which we were. And to some earlier comments that we agree too much, maybe this was a good topic for that reason too. Yeah. So are you ready for your question for next time? Yeah, I sure am. Fire away. So we just spent some time talking about traumatic brain injuries. And so I would like to use our brains in a more productive style and talk about something that's a little bit philosophical. For professional reasons, I spent a lot of time recently reading about artificial intelligence because it's been a huge impact on the workplace this year, and I feel like professionally this is something I need to understand. And something that keeps coming up in that discussion sort of touches on the question of what intelligence actually is and whether what we're seeing today is truly intelligence or just the simulation of intelligence. So I'd like us to dig deeper into that. My question for you, Joe, is what is intelligence and can a machine ever possess it? Good question. Yeah, this is deep and philosophical. I'm already imagining all the deep rabbit holes that I could fall into on this one. So my mission is going to be to try to be lean and mean about this answer. (laughs) (laughs) so that we're not taping a a three-and-a-half-hour podcast next time. (laughs) So I will go answer that, and it should be a good conversation. Looking forward to it. Okay, by now, our audience knows what we're going to do now. You guys know how to communicate with us already, we hope. You know how to interact with this podcast. There are a couple different ways. You can go to our Facebook page, Mansplaining the Podcast, We would encourage you to like us if you're enjoying listening to these episodes. Definitely check our sources. We'd love to get some feedback about sources. Sometimes we posted some really interesting things there in the hopes that you'll check it out and let us know what you think. You can leave us a comment or a question. And we would hope if you really enjoy these episodes, you give us a five-star rating because that's the way that the rest of the world knows that this is a worthwhile listen and a good podcast. There is a second way you can reach out to us. You can leave a message for us at our Google voicemail, and that number is 206-486-4074. You could also leave a question or comment there. You can find this podcast pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, if you haven't noticed that already. Our home site is Buzzsprout, but we're also available on Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. So please do check us out and look at our large body of podcasts where I think we're over 75 episodes now, running the gamut of human knowledge. Would that be fair to say, Mark? Running the gamut of two humans. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I meant there's a breadth to the topics that we take on from time to time. As you can see, we're pivoting from football to intelligence. That's polar opposites, isn't it? (laughs) Spoken as a non-football fan, but yes. Yes, right. But for now, that's all for this episode. That was Mark and I'm Joe, and we'll talk to you next time. See you then. That's it for this edition of Mansplaining. Mansplaining is brought to you by Joe and Mark and nobody else. Thank you for hanging out with us for a little bit, and we'll see you next time. 